Hello, welcome to Art Monthly's radio show. I'm Chris McCormack, and today I'm joined by Dean Kenning, artist and writer, Margareta Khan, artist, and Sophie J. Williamson, curator and writer. Today we're talking about Dean and Margareta's feature, What Side Is Art On?, and Sophie Williamson's review of the Oma Fast Show at the Imperial War Museum. I'd like to start by talking to Dean and Margareta about their notions of neoliberalism and uh, and the insidious ways in which it sort of found its way into the art world. I wonder if we could start talking about how you define neoliberalism. Well, I suppose um, neoliberalism is a um, it's a project to strengthen class power, <laughs> basically elite class power. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff written about neoliberalism, I guess, uh, over the last thirty years. So. Um, I suppose there were, I suppose after the after the yeah. Second World War there was yeah. uh, t- there, there there was a, a um, I suppose a kind of welfare state compromise with capitalism uh, which led to um, several decades mm-hmm. of um, a more kind of redistributive um, system of um, yeah you talking about mass that, population sort of collective gains collective yeah. gains and I suppose the last thirty years has seen those gains diminish being sold off. In general, um, most people, their wages have stagnated and consumerism's been maintained um, out of personal debt, mostly, and kind of um, mortgages Mm -hmm. and so on. Now, since uh, there's been, basically, the kind of share of income has gone more and more to a minority um, Mm -hmm. class elite. And uh, since the banking crisis, in particular, this has accelerated um so we've seen these kind of we've seen the um the financial crisis being used as a way to kind of um accelerate um neoliberal processes which basically benefit a, a minority um class elite yeah. uh, this is a transglobal elite really yeah. but they but they use national government states in a way to um restructure through things like privatization through things like outsourcing mm-hmm. maintaining high property values for example mm-hmm. and in general attacking unions and low, lowering um kind of um workers power yeah. really yeah. um i suppose what you know what we're interested in 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 the article um is to see how these processes occur through art and also how art is in a way a kind of victim of these kind of austerity policies so the, the, this is um basically what we're trying to do uh, i suppose the wider context is that there has been a um although neoliberal class mm-hmm. power has greatly increased and and is certainly more powerful than ever there there has been I suppose a loss of faith, a loss of kind of general faith in the kind of ideology that we've all been sold. And this accounts for lots of um, kind of global protest movements. And um, Yeah, you mentioned uh, the Sotheby's protests, the, um, the workers protesting in, was it 2000 and last yeah. year, 2010, 2012, 2011? There were two, uh, well, I mean, there are two. Yeah, two the protests. orgy of the rich. Yeah, and the one was in uh, February, I believe, 2011 where um, coalition of groups like Art Against Cuts, yeah. um, UK Uncut, Space Hijackers, they went inside a Sotheby's auction and um, had a banner which they've unhurled saying the orgy of the rich and through paper notes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, outside there was a group, a group of people as well, protesters who... Um, stage an auction of public services. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, what was interesting about that intervention 
was that they were, you know, within the auction, the people were really surprised how these people got in. Yeah. And it's a kind of like sort of suggests that there is a real kind of perception of separate class and mm. that there is no connection between the two. And um, the other that we only refer to this more in the article. There's a there's an image of that um, yeah. intervention. But in the article itself, we talk about Christie's and Sotheby's auction houses, um, and in particular, the Sotheby's in New York. And the there was um, you know almost a year long strike of the New York art handlers, mm. um, and together with the students from the Hunter College and the Occupy Sotheby's. You know, there was a there was a whole kind of in, you know action demonstrations. Yeah. Zuccotti Park, yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe you want to just say a bit more about yeah. I mean, that this, in so, so this is a I mean, this is a direct way in which mm. um, I guess the art world, including art students and people who are working as art handlers, are, are directly involved in these protest movements. In this case, the Occupy movement. Uh, I suppose the bigger context for that is that we, you know, we hear a lot about kind of, you know, belt tightening in, mm. in, in the arts and so on because of the recession, because of the um, uh, the kind of narrative of deficit reduction and how that's necessary. But I mean, the point is that there's never been more money in the art world than mm. there is now. You know, there's been record profits for um, Sotheby's and Christie's. So the the wider the wider story here is that the you know the the CEO of Sotheby's himself, a guy called William Ruprecht, doubled his own salary or had the salary doubled by the board, so he's now earning um, six million dollars. Oh, and this is the same time. Yeah, yeah that, of course, this is justified in terms yeah. of record profits. Yeah. But this is the same time that they're cutting the wages, jobs, and conditions mm-hmm. of the art handlers. So, the, I mean, this is a very, you know, it's a very good. But it's, it's a stark polarization, isn't it, between it's, those with and those without? It's a very without. good example yeah. of how art is involved in in these kind of elite class yeah. networks, um, class power, and attacks on people lower down. And of course, all this money is not trickling down it's not being spread out mm. it's not being redistributed so the yeah, you question sort of philanthropy and the notion of the philanthropy sort of saving in a way these sort of art cuts themselves well this is this is yeah. a, the, the whole issue of philanthropy i think is quite important <coughs> and it's woven through the article um and it really starts by the pressure that the current government is putting the arts council through advisors who are actually, um, you know, heads of quite kind of global corporate PR companies mm-hmm. who are then writing reports. Um, and a um, person in the question is, for example, Ronald Rudd, who's written a report in November last year advising Arts Council on having, for the National Portfolio Organization, having an additional field to fill in in their form on under philanthropy. And if they mm-hmm. can't prove that they have a, a sustainable pro- program for philanthropic mm-hmm. money coming in, um, they're not going to get funding. Now, that's part of the whole ideological project that we're talking about, neoliberalism and restructuring, which is to shift the, the, the state support and public support for arts and culture, but also for health and education 
into into the sort of private volunteerist kind mm-hmm. of initiatives under the guise of of um good morality mm. you know under the guise that they you know look these they're so rich and wonderful that they're really helping you know they're supporting the arts a very troublesome thing around you know the praise by nicola serotta um during the opening of the extension of the tanks for example where he praised the non-doms for yeah. um you know basically putting a lot of money into the Tate extension and saying something along the lines of look they're really you know they're showing their gratitude towards the city they're living in by giving all of this money and it it just for these sort extensions. of it just, yeah. yeah it just kind of makes you think wait a minute yeah. you know they're like not paying a tax <laughs> they're not actually contributing yeah. to um a, a possibility mm. of some kind of democratic redistribution yeah you mentioned it's 96 mil- 96 million is it 96 yeah it's minimum mil- of yeah. 96 billion it's costing britain yeah annually. tax avoidance yeah in tax avoidance but even tate itself you know aside from even these the support of non-doms mm. in a, whatever we think um also the involvement of lord brown here and his connection with bp um just to focus on tate for a second but um you mentioned Lord Brown and his involvement, and of yeah. course he was a chairman on a chairman for BP for a long time before he now is the chairman for or on the board of Tate, yeah. or Tate trustee, and of course his you know involvement there has led to BP being a sponsor of of Tate. And in this month's feature, actually a different feature in this month's issue, we have uh, a special feature about Colin Perry called Art and Oil, and he he comments on this particular structure, saying that. Um, you know, the BP donates something like five hundred thousand per annum, while Tate members give around five million pounds. Um, yeah, so you can see the value. kind of discrepancy yeah. between, you know, ultimately what BP are getting out of uh, this exchange. But I, I just wanted you to talk about sort of Lord, Lord Brown. Brown. Really. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, basically, it's 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 an absolute disgrace that Lord Brown should be chair of mm. uh, the Tate uh, chair of the Tate on the board of trustees. I mean, Brown is basically, you know, he's 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 one of these, um, you know, ultra kind of capitalist uh, neoliberal voices, really. I mean, there's a whole. I don't know if um, Colin Perry goes in, in, into the um, uh, what he did under un, under um, under BP. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he did increase kind of um, shareholder profits mostly through um, efficiency savings, cuts in health and safety, and all of all, all of that stuff. Um, but he also, for example, he was made um, the uh, Cameron's efficiencies are. Mm. So his job uh, in this job in in, in in this role is exactly to find ways to cut public spending. In fact, he was given um, given the task of finding six point two billion pound in public spending cuts. The other thing, of course, um, the. Going back to the, this idea of philanthropy and, 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 and how cheap it is, actually, mm. I mean, there's, a, there's a whole kind of funny thing about sponsorship, where sponsorship is actually given a different category. It's, it's understood as, um, not as not as commercial activity. But as contributed income. As contribution. Income. So yeah. basically corporate sponsorship is not advertising. It's not the same as hiring out your, pla- hiring out your place or... 
you know, having a restaurant or increasing mm. ticket sales or something, it's understood in this in, uh, as as this kind of philanthropic giving, which is of course is nonsense. It, it is actually high market advertising, but because it's not seen in that kind of venal way, mm. it's it's very very good. Um, value for money kind of promotion mm. um so that's i mean that's one thing but then brown is actually using his kind of position here as as a, as, a, as a kind of tool of kind of public um discourse so i'll, I'll quote um what he said recently in in as a kind of you know uh, in this role he is now able to kind of speak on these kind of in these kind of cultural platforms so he says uh while some would call for a redistribution of income to happen through tax systems, uh, we, need to com- we need to compete to attract internationally mobile capital, and a tax rate that is too high would reduce the potential for entrepreneurial growth. Besides, against the backdrop of rising inequality, asking the rich to give more is a decent way of creating a more balanced society. So this is basically the... Um, the ideological shift that we're seeing happening. I mean, he's, he's expressed it incredibly uh, efficiently yeah. here. It's like the whereas once we had, you know, a kind of redistributive, a more redistributive kind of tax yeah. system, which uh, was compulsory, you know, uh, and this was a way to kind of get some mm. money from the people who had it and redistribute it a bit more evenly. Now we have to keep tax rate tax rates low to uh, um, you know to create an entrepreneurial kind of yeah. environment for capital to come in, and then uh, because he, as he admits um, <laughs> inequalities are growing so extreme, the rich will then come in and do their bit for society by giving some of the mm. money back. So it's a, it's a purely as uh, Margareta says, it's a kind of voluntarist notion, yeah. and basically it's big society. And, uh, yeah, agenda. I, mean, I don't know if they're still using that term. It's kind of lost currency. It's still big in the art world. Yeah, I mean, they're doing things like tax breaks for profit making, social enterprises, um, and then also proposing to further cut top rate income tax for philanthropic giving. I mean, this yeah. is all very yeah. conscientious. Yeah. Um, restructuring. I'll say role. something else yeah. about Lord Brown as well, and how you know how how, how disgusting it is that he's he has this role at Tate. Is mm. that his uh, as the main author of the Brown Review, mm. which recommended um, you know shifting the costs of education from um, from um, the government to students, students and to create a market in higher education, mm. which is basically the, the the kind of underlying logic mm. of um, what he's trying to create um you know he's done he's probably done more than anyone uh, apart from michael gove <laughs> <laughs> uh, possibly to you know to make the art world basically uh you know a worse place to make it increasingly privileged increasingly homogeneous mm. um to limit access you know the the, the new market in education will probably end up the the kind of victims of that will be not only students from kind of you know with low income families but mm. also smaller uh, colleges uh, and uh, um, departments within colleges which are outside the main cities and these are exactly the places that we need mm. um, art colleges and kind of artists to grow from the bottom up really so absolutely yeah <laughs> instead you get these flagship flagship buildings you know increasingly uh sending colleges and universities they spend all their money on new atriums and new extensions rather than actual 
yeah. funding a you know building up a good teacher you know t- teacher base or I don't know because they want pro- to attract yeah. um, customers yeah, exactly uh, global exactly in the global uh, and, <laughs> and that's what we're you know that's a, I think also what we're trying to map which is that um, you know through that shift what's happening is that the galleries and I'm talking here mostly publicly funded or partly publicly mm-hmm. funded what's what's left of public funding in the galleries have to then maintain a certain brand image of exclusivity because you know in order to attract the philanthropic yeah. money they need to portray a certain image and also they still like siphon off and live off a kind of avant-gardist credentials of art that's then sort of mm. maintaining that image of exclusivity. So we're trying to also talk about these seeming yeah, You talk about that contradiction, that. don't you, yeah. where the, the outreach programs or the education programs that occur in the day mm. are then, you know, modified or changed by night. You know, it's this contradictory relation to, you know, the artists working with, you know, local communities in the yeah. day and then doing hedge fund, hedge, fund, hedge fund dinners in the evening, you know, the same organisations. You know, In a way, it's this contradictory balance between... Well, looking outwards and also looking for the money as well, perhaps. And what is the worrying kind of um, way in which I mean, we we could make a parallel here with something like uh, widening participation Mm -hmm. in education, Mm -hmm. where suddenly the idea of um, getting students from poorer backgrounds becomes a special kind of case and a special, almost kind of a special. Profession and a little kind of professional, professionalized kind of section within something like um, higher education. Um, the same with something like kind of community projects, education projects. You know, I think these projects are, uh, are great, yeah. but it's almost as if this is how you kind of deal with um, avoid. You know, you 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 kind of deal with a, a, this constituency of an audience through this almost. You know, um, I mean instead of the gallery itself becoming more kind of open, more inclusive, more public, more um, relevant in general and more part of a kind of um, more democratic mm. culture, um, it, like Margareta says, the, the whole emphasis on what art can sell, actually, what it sells mm. is exclusivity mm. and prestige. These, these are its yeah. biggest selling points. So that's what it has to... So you put in a fancy restaurant, you kind of mm. make it look like <laughs> an exclusive place to go. Yeah. It? So, well, and ultimately yeah. these corporations such as BP or any other number of dubious organisations which you sort of talk about, you know, whitewash themselves through a sort of very careful management of PR. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, the notion of uh, soft power yeah. is important. Yeah. And, um, you know, this, this idea of soft power is now... It's you know it's it's an openly discussed um, strategy. The, you like know, Carver Twenty Two, for example, yeah. openly on their website uses that term as a kind of tool through which um, art can be used to reach the global community, and mm-hmm. and they're not the only ones. And again, you know, um, they're the so-called non-profit private foundation, uh, but publicly run galleries are also using it, maybe not as blatantly in their statements. And that's what we're, in a way, trying to sort of um, articulate is how the soft power or how the neoliberal Mm. ideology has seeped in and particularly, um, you know, concerning um, spaces that are publicly funded and they they have a certain kind of a role to fulfill um, towards the public and towards artists as well. So one of the worrying um, things that, for example, Index on Censorship has just 
written about, which is a, a rise in self-censorship for artists um, that corresponds directly to a rise in private funding. Um, yeah, I want to talk to yeah. you about that, what the index actually is, or what what is that? Uh, index on censorship. Yeah. Um, um, they're an organisation that um, campaigns and promotes free speech. Okay. Um, I think they have also a publication. They run a, a certain number of um, events. Okay. Um, as far as I, I yeah, come no, across, I, 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 yeah. It's interesting. I just think that that notion of self-censorship, mm. I think, is interesting and the ways in which ultimately your, the argument seems to be about the way um, these sort of the branding or where the, the marrying up really of the artists themselves to this brand and ultimately that creating a form of censorship in a way because the brand doesn't necessarily fit them with the artist's mm. necessary idea. Mm. Um, and I wondered if you knew or any examples of where maybe... I mean, I can think of one off the top of my head where... Uh, the Tate, I think several years ago, staged a, a Tate art and oil protest within the within the actual building itself. And that, do you remember? It was art, not oil, and they, they pasted images up from inside. Tate um, did that? Yeah, they did, yeah. Um, it was sort of backfired on them a tiny <laughs> bit. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, there's... I mean, for me, what's kind of interesting is the way that... I mean, I suppose in general terms, um, w- the you know the kind of ideology we're fed um, this kind kind of corporate pedagogy, as um, Henry Giroux calls mm-hmm. it, um, is that markets are dynamic. Markets bring mm-hmm. about um, you know exciting uh, new things, and it, and and uh, and uh, in some ways they do, but in lots of other ways they don't. They lead to um, standardization to an obsession with, um, with with kind of safety and and um, basically a kind of a, you know a, a very cautious kind of approach because mm-hmm. what you want is you want to make profits and there's a way in which this happens in the art world a lot. I mean anyone who's been to the kind of freeze art fair um, mm. will know that what you will get is very a very kind of limited kind of homogenous range of stuff um often by the same artists mm. and kind of repeated i mean it's not a very exciting place to go i mean we we went to um white cube, white cube <laughs> yesterday in uh what's it called mason's yard mason's yard and it's i mean it's just appalling i mean it's the it's worse than any that's a selected degree. show it's Competi- yeah, a competition it's, that was selected. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the ins and outs. I'm a bit dubious about that. <laughs> <laughs> how the uh, how that process happens. But um, the point is, it's boring. It's really boring. So there, there's a, there's some kind of idea of um, I suppose that art, which art, which kind of approaches kind of politics in some way, might be quite conventional, and we can kind of understand mm-hmm. it. Uh, but this is not really necessarily the case. It's, it seems to be. But there's a kind of over a kind of over cautious approach mm-hmm. to maintaining a certain kind of brand image, and this is unfortunately seems to be very strong in kind of public mm-hmm. galleries now, mm-hmm. where they do mimic um, both the kind of forms and 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 the kind of um, methods of um, kind of private galleries, and tend to show the same people, and they tend to be done through these, you know, quite kind of you know top-down, micromanaged mm. kind of structures and so on. and Exactly what Dean's saying. And then on the other hand, you've got these um, non-profit foundations, which are actually privately funded and also have corporate sponsorships as well, who are then mimicking 
what public gallery are or were um, having a, you know their own education strand you know building partnerships with universities academic institutions um, publishing yeah and I think in this article we also um, mention the Finnish Birane Zabludovic mm-hmm. and um, you know it's its own links to for example holdings in a commercial property built in an illegal settlement in yeah. West Bank through a company called Tamaris, which is actually registered in Liechtenstein, which mm-hmm. we know is a tax tax haven. <laughs> yes. So, you know, there are quite kind of worrying links between these kind of spaces and people that run them, between the sort of the image that they're portraying mm-hmm. as a kind of open democratic space and the actual kind of political workings going on within, going them. On within yeah. them and also within the kind of ways in which they have influence in, in the kind of sort of wider political spectrum. Yeah. Because so. yeah, well, so, so, in a way, talking about this sort of white cube show as a sort of, you know, it's, what struck me when I saw that show was the homogenization of the actual look, yeah. despite the sort of uh, necessarily the diversity within the works themselves, the stylization or the look of the works were very similar and even though some of the works appropriated a look of, one could say, protest or, you know, those, those sort of looks. And I wondered what you were, you were talking about, because you sort of referenced that in the, towards the end of your article, where you talk about the sort of smokescreen effect, where the working is going on. You know, artists can necessarily talk about these subjects, but the actual institutions themselves remain untouched or unmarked uh, by yeah. the actual goings on, what's mm-hmm. within them. And I think, you know, something like White Cube certainly is very good at being able to present these works but you know, ultimately embodies a very sort of form a capitalist sort yeah. of structure. Ultimately, I mean, expect yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, white cube to go all radical, particularly. <laughs> no, um, really. that'd be surprising. But um, the, uh, sorry to interject. Just the open core thing was interesting because it was like suddenly the curator is presented as this kind of almost like the liberator, mm. you know, of the artist because he opens up the space for so many artists to apply to the grand cathedral, the white yeah. cube, and all of that was so fraught with just, yeah, yeah. unbelievableness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be, inter- it'd be interesting to see, to actually find out what the what the criteria were and how those mm. kind of, how was, how that was whittled down from so, so many thousands applicants yeah. to 18, 18 or something. Well, one criteria was they had to be available for an interview. I, I guess a lot online. of them went straight in the bin. But um, I mean, this is a this is a kind you know this is like an area where even even to get um, a, a kind of artist studio now, uh, certain organisations mm. ask for CVs. You know, I mean, this is this is pretty um, <laughs> gruesome. You know, pretty horrific. Yeah, the I think what so what I mean what we're trying to do in the article is really to um, to point out a number and there, 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 there's many more, but we kind of pick up on a number of specific um, kind of structures and kind of relations and and individuals and organisations and how these kind of operate to how they operate in a neoliberal manner, how they kind of um, increase um, these neoliberal processes that we spoke about at the beginning of the show. Um, rather than to reduce them, but often, of course, there's um, there is that need to uh, from you know from from coming from that kind of avant-gardist tradition, I guess, to at least speak that language of critique or kind of um, you know radical opposition to a kind of status quo. The point we're trying to make is that these these um, even when the kind of discussion is more kind of critical and is um, 
you know, for example, there's been a lot of stuff since the kind of um, global financial crisis about the problems of um, capitalism yeah. and how it operates, uh, particularly the kind of financialization and so on. But this is not necessarily... As long as these are still operating within the kind of structures, these kind of art world structures which are in themselves neoliberal, they can become a kind of smokescreen. Or at the very least, they, they can not have much um, kind of power yeah, as a kind of um, you know as a kind of cultural yeah. artistic act so in a way there's a there's although we're all you know we're not talking about artists being pure or anyone mm. involved in the art world in any way we're not interested mm. in this kind of purity it doesn't exist we are all part of the system but if we can at least um, identify what these you know where these points of uh of kind of um class antagonism mm. are kind of operating and kind of neoliberal powers being extended if we can identify these and if we can then figure out you know how we act within these how we operate within these and how we can resist these then this is quite a powerful thing because these are the points where mm. we actually have some kind of influence to actually change things significantly but these are also kind of problematic areas because of the way the art world structured. People, you know, naturally well, yeah. want to make a career for themselves. Exactly. They and don't want to be totally alienated. And there's all these other yeah. pressures, you know, of living in London or whatever, of wherever course, you live. Yeah, and, sure. and of course, of course these yeah. extenuating circumstances, getting the work out there, you know. Yeah. And obviously, but I think it's where, yeah, I guess where, like Dean was saying, what we're kind of tr- attempting to do is to articulate those smoke screens. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not to pretend that they're not there. And mm. I think that's kind of what keeps going on and on more and more is that there's a kind of pretense of there not being an influence mm. of certain funder, uh, there not being an influence of a certain kind of agenda and things like that. So, you know, maybe, for example, not as an example of what we're talking about specifically around how to kind of rub up against the the neoliberal power. But, for example, the current exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery on Utopia um, relies heavily on volunteer labour. And you could argue that it normalises volunteerism. It normalises the big society Mm. through the way it's structured. And yet it does not actually embrace that kind of contextual... You know, it doesn't Mm. actually... Acknowledge acknowledge that, you know, and... um, Although there, you know, there have been groups and there are groups who are raising it up, like Precarious Workers Brigade, but you know, it's still you want the institutions to, again, not perform self-reflexivity either. It's something else that we're talking about here. It needs to be some kind of uh, uh, a sort of more radical, more militant kind of approach. Um, what that's embodied that. in the works themselves, or by the actions of the artists, or I, I think it's yeah. actually yes. all interconnected, both. Yeah. both yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah. I mean, I still believe in the avant-garde. You know, yeah. I know it might not be fashionable, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, 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 uh, I see. I don't see the point of art doing art otherwise. You know, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, the avant. If you, I mean, it depends how you define the avant-garde. If you define <laughs> yeah, an avant-garde, <laughs> I don't know if Margareta agrees with me <laughs> on this point, but <laughs> you know, if you think of uh, something like you know, twentieth-century art as being you know, against a certain status quo, against the powers that be, 
uh, or at least kind of oppositional or kind of in, involved with radical experimentation, you know, involved with creating something that's actually new rather than just looking new because, you yeah. know, that's how <laughs> you create more profit for people uh, or, or make them into kind of passive consumers or something. You know, if you create something which is actually re- really new and that could happen through... If, and if you think, like, if you think about how... There, you know, there was always a big inf- inf- emphasis on trying to break down exclusivity, trying to, you know, that idea of bringing art into life and how that actually happens. You know, these are still really kind of important things. But I think the, I think with the avant, the early twentieth century avant garde, for example, that would that could happen through attacks on bourgeois aesthetic tastes and through kind of bourgeois morality. Uh, this doesn't. This can't work now. This is not, um, you know, this is not how capitalist power operates now. In, in kind of postmodern capitalism, we're sold sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. This is how you conform. You know, you conform through being a rebel and so on. Aesthetics have absolutely, as far as I can understand it, aesthetics have absolutely no connection to. Um, the signifiers for exclusivity in art now. I mean, you could, you know, you could be talking about, you could have a VIP ticket for freeze or mm-hmm. you could have a kind of corporate ticket for the Olympics or um, a VIP t- ticket to see Chelsea play or mm-hmm. something. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the point is that these are all kind of ways in which class power is, 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 um, um, is kind of, you know, flagged up. This is how yeah. you... Also, it's What's sense of, inside the Freeze Art Fair doesn't matter. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. It, the, 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 the institution itself is the signifier for high art or a kind of exclusive form of culture in that case. Yeah, and there's subtle gradations within that. Of course, one is more VIP or more and more VIP. Yeah. Or one aims at <laughs> I, further I prestige even. within the prestige <laughs> itself. I think yeah. you yeah. get caught in these yeah, much more difficult traps. Well, I think there are... Um, I agree with much of what Dean says. Oh, there you go. Um, there, you go. Um, there, are, there are different ways within the art world that value is produced. So there is, you know, um, it's not always just turns into a kind of profit in that kind of classical definition. Um, but there's a cultural capital. There's all sorts of capitals that are like... There's a reputational capital. And there's all sorts of ways in which these capitals are created that are then, um, you know, often... It, it sort of transfers into like, oh, well, I'm going to work for free because I can get, mm-hmm. you know, this on my CV or I can do this. So there's loads of ways exploitation within the art world works. But um, I think just on the... on, on, on yeah, As Nina Power commented, we're walking CVs. Yeah, yeah. we are. Yeah. We are. I mean, the social media is just mm. kind of perpetuates that as well. I mean, but I mean, just in terms of the avant-garde and I'm, you know, again, we, we don't have time to go into such a, yeah. a, a big topic. But I think my, my only gripe about the notions of avant-garde from the early 20th century is that it misses out. It's still very Eurocentric and very male-centric. So um, that's what I'm going to say, because there's a whole kind of other narratives. But that's a whole other... Yeah, I should bring in <laughs> Sophie at this point, actually. As, uh, been, so moving on from sort of soft power to much more hard power, I think. I forgot um, that I was meant to do some talking as well. <laughs> I've just been engrossed in listening. Uh, which you were talking about Elmer Fest, uh, which is currently on show at the Imperial War Museum. Um, for those who haven't seen the show, it's sort of it's called Five Thousand is the Best, and it's a it's a sort of it's a piece that's based around a 
uh, a drone worker, um, drones being the uh, sort of unmanned vehicles that sort of fly across uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan and assassinate targets, people remotely, often in deserts. Well, in this case, he's based in Las Vegas. Um, and it, it sort of charts his, his response to these actions um, in a hotel room. And he talks about his sort of traumas and stresses uh, to camera uh, being interviewed, uh, assuming, assumed by the, the artist Emma himself. Uh, so you went to see it. You've seen it before, haven't you? You've seen it. I think, yeah, I think probably quite a lot of our listeners have seen it before. Yeah. It's shown quite a few times. I've seen it before at the Venice Biennale a yeah. couple of years ago. But it's a, um, if, if you haven't seen it, go and see it. It's a really yeah. fantastic film. It's, uh, as you've said, it's, it follows this... It's based on this interview that Fast um, carries out with this drone operator, ex-drone operator, um, suffering from post-traumatic stress. And see, so you see part of the interview footage with his face blurred out, but the majority of the film is this reenactment. And I think it's interesting in comparison to documentaries that we've seen or news footage that we've seen, because it's um, the way that it's filmed and the way it's cut is very much to evoke a sense of what it is to be like um, to be a drone operator. And we kind of talk about these drones quite a lot and, and um, obviously it's a very politically sensitive subject and when I was writing this was the two main news stories that week were um, Bradley Manning's sentencing and um, suspected US drone strikes um, in Yemen and Pakistan mm-hmm. and I think that this film is very interesting in comparison to, to those debates that we're having um, in the news because we kind of think of these, uh, we think of the drones, we don't think of the US drone mm-hmm. operators. And so it brings in this very personal aspect of it and really makes the viewers consider um, how we're implicated in those and and who we're giving permission to kill on our behalf. The The interview is cut between repeating reenactments of the interview um, and each time it's a different version of the story and it becomes very confusing and it really gives you a sense of the how precarious it is and the possibility for so much human error and gives an idea of the personal relationship between the person that's being watched and the voyeur and that really what all comes down to is this very personal relationship between the kind of predator and the, yeah. the person that's killed. What I found striking about the film as well is that a lot of the um, the, the narratives, a lot of it's voiceover, mm. and you get the drone operator describing these scenes, such as you know a scene at night, uh, and he's recounting you know seeing a st- uh, the different through infrared cameras the different temperatures or the different images that he can see, and he's describing an, a, a narrative or a situation that's happened seemingly in Afghanistan or Yemen or wherever. Uh, but the images themselves are of a sort of Nevada scene. So it could be, and in this case, it's an image of a, bicy- a boy riding a bicycle down a long street. And you're hearing this, this, other, this other story overlaid over the top of it. And so it's this, it's this discrepancy between what we're looking at uh, and this imagine. We're imagining both scenes. So we're seeing this guy, this boy, and he's saying we can picture, we can go as close as to see his trainers, his shoes, his hair color. 
Um, but really, the description we're hearing is that of an Afghanistan situation. And so you get this, I suppose, uh, the trauma or this rip between the the trauma of him res- describing the scene and then that being transplanted back into American culture. Uh, and this, I, I thought, was very kind of yeah. really well, really well rendered actually yeah. in his work. And I think, and there's other aspects of it as yeah. well that deal with kind of race, racial assumptions, yeah. and assumptions of distance as well. And you know, we we see these reports of things happening in Iraq or you know the other side of the world, and they seem so far from home. And as the voiceover is narrating these stories the images that you're seeing are of western families or or western locations and so there's this constant kind of push and pull mm. between immediate assumptions that you make and what you're knowing is actually yeah. the truth behind the story and i think that what was really interesting about this show actually is its context um the film itself is yeah. is is a it was a fantastic piece of work but what was really important for me and the reason that I wanted to write about it was because it's the first um, exhibition at the Imperial War Museum's new contemporary art space and I think this is something which is really needed that we have such a rich art production that talks very intelligently about current p- political affairs and um, and wider society mm conditions but that within an art world that's a very limited audience and is often preaching to the converted already and obviously the imperial war museum has a much larger audience and beyond the visitors to the museum itself that it has kind of more clout maybe across society so i'm really excited to see how the program yeah i I, I saw it yesterday and in a hot sort of sunny afternoon on, on in august you know surrounded by you know, people in T-shirts and shorts, you know, children. Seeing this film is extremely different than having seen it in mm. an art context. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's just interesting because you're looking at it in a very different way and you're looking at it without those presumably codes. You're looking at it very diff- without those codes of seeing it in an art context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's going to strip from that. It's, uh, it's kind of much more powerful, I think. Yeah, yeah. and I think that um, it sets precedence yeah. as well for contemporary art being um, considered in mm. more wider political and social debates I think and the way that art can really play an important function in our understanding of contemporary issues yeah certainly and in that context of military warfare um, you know when we think about the the dispatching really of the violence or the the imagery of terror you know you think of ground troops and the devastation of houses and situations completely desiccated by by military warfare but here a drone is this sort of you know they call it a a light of god don't they this beam that they fire Mm. from the drone just in order to secure their sort of their sort of target um so it's this idea of this clinical almost needle-like pinpointing into onto the ground from you know five thousand feet to destroy this thing without any sort of you know real there's not there's not the spectacle of, of war really um, and so it's a cleaner, uh, well, it seems, you know, cleaner. And I think mm. that's how it's certainly yeah. working for American politics anyway. Yeah, well, that's um, how it's portrayed anyway. Yeah. And I think this kind of, this film gives that real kind of behind the scenes impression of, mm. to, to, to be able to portray actually the confusion and the precarity of the situation. Yeah. And that's an aspect of it that we don't normally see, I guess. 
Yeah, certainly. And uh, even, I mean, also the other thing is, well, there's no, you don't have to, you know, there's no detainees. There's no, uh, they're basically killed on, you know, these people are killed. There's no, you don't, there's, they don't have to take them to Guantanamo. There's no sense of interrogation here. So, I mean, I think Drode is, a, I think this is a new area in which to understand um, how we understand war, I think. Um, I'd be interested to see how the how the programme unfolds and how much influence it can have in terms of broader debates. I think that, you know, the, the footage, particularly the week that Brady Manning was yeah. sentenced, that, that footage that we've all seen so many times before of this kind of, it's almost like it's been compared so much like video games this kind of aerial yeah. shot is something which we've almost become quite desensitized to because these images are circulating on the internet so much but that maybe there's a way that art can play a role in kind of really pulling apart these imagery this imagery that we're seeing that's um flooded the the news Certainly, I think that's, yeah, that's true. Well, maybe I'll quote from your article, so it's quite <laughs> nice. Uh, so you say, contemporary art in the museum environment plays a vital role beyond visualising and illustrating information. It is one that can agitate and instigate debate. Now, I think that's really true. And I think the, I mean, I'm also, unfortunately, I haven't seen this. Um, I did also mean to see it yesterday, but... <laughs> Go and see way it. late. I definitely will, I definitely will. And it, and. I am also really interested in the fact that it's at the Imperial War Museum yeah. and I think this is really, you know, a really vital thing that changes the content and I suppose it's those it's those kind of issues of the kind of context of something and how that is not, it's not incidental to the artwork, you know, absolutely not, mm-hmm. it's absolutely vital. And these, so these kind of functions that you talk about, you know, if we're talking about the power of art to do certain things that are not generally done in um, the, 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 the kind of general visual culture that we live in, you know, then how does that get propagated? How does that get distributed beyond these kind of contexts which just kind of label it as art somehow mm. or political art mm-hmm. or something? Yeah, and the, the opposite of that is that where you're getting straight news you don't have the space to contemplate and kind of argue those things out and, and kind of discuss and reflect. Um, so I think that this space at the mm. Imperial War Museum actually gives that in-between space mm. between... Well, it's a very kind of ambivalent place, isn't mm. it, the Imperial War Museum? And it is interesting because it's like, it's the kind of, you know, like my dad would go to the Imperial War Museum, yeah. but he wouldn't go to yeah. an art gallery. Yeah. And... It's a, it's a strange way in which there's something quite overly militaristic about the Imperial War Museum and kind of almost, you know, people go there who are into, you know, planes and... Um, mm. and, and um, but then, you know, you, of course you're confronted with a horror and you do that... I think you do the kind of trench experience That's and you right. walk around yeah. the trenches mm. and you kind of... Get well, the Holocaust some history, kind of, yeah. Or the, yeah, yeah, so you get, you know, so it's. I remember going there as a child, and it it was a kind of horrible place to go. It wasn't mm. like going to the Natural History Museum yeah. seeing the dinosaurs. It was kind of quite depressing, you know. So I mean, I mean, we in in the article we write, we I guess in a, in a way we're kind of quite critical of what's going on in public galleries um, and the public sector, but we're not, you know, we're definitely not against uh, you know just the opposite it's like how do we create a more yeah, it's a different we, dialogue isn't it yeah, yeah it's not about um, 
you know, escaping from, um, you know, from, from the kind of public institutions that exist. It's more about how do we do different things with them? How do we kind of multiply these kind of things? Well, I think that, um, that actually that's something which relates to your article is this kind of in-between space because what is often quite frustrating about public galleries is is how, apart from places like the Tate, is how narrow the publics end up being. Yeah. Whereas maybe in uh, a museum situation or other areas that there's this possibility of kind of bringing art a bit more into mainstream discussions and not it being a kind of art world context yeah um, i'm i'm i i kind of have real issues with imperial war museum <laughs> <laughs> you know and and I, you know i don't i don't sort of often say this but you know have you know i've come um from bosnia i've come because yeah. of the war to this country and it was a real struggle going to imperial war museum and so emotionally i've struggled being in there but also seeing you know the history the the kind of the 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 terror and the violence perpetuated um in the british colonial history which doesn't end and i'm relieved that there was a vote last night to not go into syria absolutely re- relieved so and i i guess i'm more erring on the side just in terms of imperial war museum you know that you know, of course, you know, I, I welcome that there is a space and there's a space for art. I would just be wary of, like, several things there. One is to kind of, and I'm not saying you're doing that at all, but, you know, in terms of, like, suddenly fetishizing museums as spaces in which something will be possible that's not possible in the galleries, and uh, and especially with the kind of loadedness of the Imperial War Museum. And I've seen yeah. this piece, and I think it's amazing. Yeah. I've not seen it in that context, but I thought that's brilliant that it's there. Yeah. So I'm not, you know, I just have like, you know, Imperial of course, War uh, of course. I mean, even the, the even the word exactly <laughs> Imperial in front of it. It's not you easy. Know, how does it deal yeah. with that history? I mean, it's amazing opportunity. I mean, how to take that history, you know, and the space and think about an art program? Um, incredible. So I'm really curious as well. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what actually is next in their lineup. I, I don't know what it is yet, but it is that it is that funny thing of walking into the Imperial War Museum and being confronted by those two uh, two gun missiles. You know, this huge yeah. gun. Oh my god! I wonder. Just bring this back to to your argument again. Mm. I wonder how this would relate to neoliberal funding for the arts and how public sector money can be, how funders can be convinced to fund projects that is about producing art and not so much focused on the audience members that you're getting in and how because I think my I, I, I've written about this before um, but from the other perspective from your article is how um, public funding has this neoliberal agenda to it um, and that possibly by um, suggesting ways that contemporary art can play a role in a wider society than it currently does. Maybe there's possibilities of proving to the people that we need to convince that art isn't contemporary art isn't just about kind of how many education projects you can you can work on and and how many kind of kids between the age of five and seven you can see on a Saturday morning in the galleries and maybe how how contemporary art can play a 
a much broader role than this kind of tick box funding applications yeah, allow. That's, um, I mean, it's such a, it's a, <laughs> I don't have an answer, <laughs> but I think it, it, it's sort of from also what we're, what we're writing about, it's about kind of lifting that prescriptiveness mm. out, even from that desire for art to play a role in a wider society. Mm. I would even, like, mm-hmm. strip that out. But, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't just, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in art just as a kind of, you know, we're going back to this whole idea of, like, the, the influences of either neoliberal ideology. I think that's what kind of really is, is trying, we're trying to map, is how certain beliefs, such in mythologies, such as that neoliberal, uh, um, such as that private funding is good and neoliberal is good, market is good, it's kind of dynamic. And so once we could, you know, if we strip off those ideologies, I think something interesting can happen. Yeah. I think but I'm being really with... like kind of you know minimalistic <laughs> here because I'm aware of the time. <laughs> no, we've got another couple of minutes. I mean, oh, we've got. Yes. I was yeah. suddenly like, yeah. oh. if I can respond to that, I mean, I think <laughs> there's kind of two things. I mean, I, firstly, I agree that the emphasis hasn't been on kind of non-instrumental notions of art. It has been because, but this seems to me to be the problem with the idea of persuasion. I, I think there mm. should be much less kind of notions of trying to persuade anyone of anything and I think um, the art world in general should kind of get a bit more militant because as soon as you as soon as you try to kind of persuade politicians or whatever that you know what you're doing has some kind of benefit you're immediately kind of stuck in this um, in this kind of um, discourse of having to prove that and it's a kind of it's quite a kind of weak position I don't know. I, I kind of maybe I didn't word it probably. I meant the opposite. I meant that yeah. that we should be able to persuade, but persuade there shouldn't be these objective based funding that no, that, no, that, no, that, that right, yeah. art yeah. can play yeah. this independent role where it has a purpose and it and it does have a role, but that but that it shouldn't be outcome based. I mean, the outcome based thing is yeah. is a problem, particularly in the way that a lot of even even the kind of arts funding campaign groups um the arts arts save the arts and these other these these kind of organizations party Um, conference and even yeah the uh, the bob mabert smith art party conference is talking about changing the changing the language from funding to investment from funding to investment and this seems to me completely like the wrong yeah. thing to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, the invest. You know, what does investment mean? Investment means that you get a return on something. Now, those returns can could be financial. This is the way that the government would talk yeah. about investment in the arts. You know, everything's got to bring a kind of return, and those returns would basically be kind of private, private profit. But even to think of other kinds of returns, you know, you're immediately in this kind of position of uh, having mm. to justify anything in terms of what it's going to bring back yeah. so I think this yeah. is kind of the wrong way to go and we see this in education as well I'll give a quick example, I know we've got to finish <laughs> up, <laughs> but you know there's, a, there's, a, there's an academy group called Absolute Return for Kids ARK and it's run by kind of private um, stock market investors and of course it's all done as part of this um, 
you know, academization and big society and so on. Stumble, but this yeah. is the kind of language which is... Uh, so, I, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and on that point, it just leaves me to say that if, for those that uh, haven't read The Smith Issue, it's out now and uh, covers all these subjects and, in much more detail and it's on sale. So uh, do subscribe or contact us uh, on the website. Uh, many thanks to, again to uh, Margareta, Dean and Sophie. Thanks. Um, thanks. Tune in next month. Thank okay, you. take care. Bye-bye.